journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Yes, this is Sky FM 101.9 and I am Adol Kazilski. The privilege of using the next three quarters of an hour and learning Torah with you. We are learning the book of Genesis. Um, we're in chapter 26, and we are going to finish up chapter 26. Last week we finished up, up to verse 14, and my intention is to take you to the end of chapter 26, and really, in a sense, conclude that probably one of the only stories we have of Isaac, of Isaac and uh, Rebecca's life, um, without any, uh, complications from the family. And uh, if you've only picked up now, just to give you a quick background, Isaac and uh, uh, Yitzchak and Rivka faced a famine and decided to leave the land. And they were traveling through uh, the area of Gerar, where Avimelech, king of Gerar, at Gerar, it was the land of the Philistines, the Plishtim. Um, as he was moving through there, God told him, you're not to leave the land as your forefather Abraham, you're to stay in the land, and I will multiply uh, you and I will bless you extensively, you're not to leave the land. If you've missed and you want to know much more about that, then go ahead and uh, look up the podcasts on highfm.com on the website and you can pick that up in detail. When he uh, resides in Gerar, um, again, there is a debacle with him and Abimelech regarding Rivka, because again, he tells Rivka is his sister, not his wife. And the bottom line is, after all of that is sorted, um, Yitzchak actually uh, becomes unbelievably wealthy, thanks to Hashem's blessing. And this is where we're going to pick up now, that, and where we left off last week, was that um, Yitzchak prospered, and he flourished, and he had a tremendous amount of sheep, flocks of cattle, huge, huge retinues of slaves, and the last words were the Yikano Otov Plishtim. The Philistines became very, very jealous of him. Now, one of the other things that the Philistines had done is that, remember, this is version 2. Before, um, in a, a previous chapters, when Abraham was alive, he too landed up living near uh, Abimelech for a while, and Abraham had dug wells. And what had happened was that um, that that after Abraham left, the the Plishtim had plugged them all up um, and closed all these wells down. As verse fifteen says, the Chol Haberot Asher Chafru Avdei Aviv Vimei Abraham Aviv Sitmum Plishtim Vayimalaum Afa that all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, the Plishtim had plugged them up and filled them up but with earth. Now, why would they do that? Well, they seized these wells by force. Um, and they did it on purpose because they argued that maybe these wells were harmful. Harmful. And not only were they harmful, but they weren't good for political reasons because an invading army could easily use them up um, as its water supplies. What we see now, um, we will we will get to it now in verse 18, Yitzhak comes and re-digs these wells. Now, the one thing that we do learn um, immediately from this entire discussion is how unbelievably um, congruent 
Yitzhak was with what his father did. And this is an emphasis on the customs that we receive from our parents. That one should know that the customs of our parents are there. They're not trivial. And we shouldn't change them. And we should carry on the customs that we have. And in fact, many a time, this is very much emphasized when we are uh, practicing um, our Judaism, um, one, one, one that comes to mind, for example, is the customs we have on Pesach. There is a halacha around Pesach um, about um, eating chomets and matzah, but in between um, us looking at the halacha, there is a tremendous amount, tremendous amount of custom that people keep, and that is because of that which they should have got either from their mother or father, from, from their family lineage, or if they knew to, to Judaism and um, what they would have picked up from what they learned and the, the rabbis that they ascribe to. Customs are very, very important. Um, we even know that the way the verses of the, of the Manishtana are said, um, are said in, in, in different, in a different sequential order. Again, to do with custom. Where do we learn this from? We see this from Yitzchak. Whatever his father did, he did because he kept to the same um, to the same customs as his father. But more than that, and probably more importantly than that, um, why is it that out of everything that happens in Yitzchak's lives, we now have almost an entire chapter telling us about digging wells? So our rabbis come to teach us that this wasn't just about uh, political maneuvering or trying to find water or, or, or trying to do anything like that, but rather that this was a, a, a metaphor. It was um, an allusion to the fact that Yitzchak dug deeper into the realities of this world, just like his father had done. So one, one, one uh, commentator goes and says this was Yitzhak looking at things that his father had come to realize were the truths of this world, that there is only one God, that this God runs this world, that God looks after each and every single person, that the true way to serve God is through a monotheistic religion. Uh, Yitzhak uh, was doing that and he dug even deeper. He dug into the wells of knowledge and the wells of, of, um, of, 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 of godliness even more. And so Abraham did it. The Philistines, once he left, didn't like what they did, so they undid it, and then Yitzhak redoes it again now. Another commentator goes and says that this is not necessarily about that, but about the fact that it alludes to the converts that Abraham made in his times, that they were receptacles of faith, that just like a, a, a well is receptacle, a well is receptacle to water, and he convinced them to 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 serve the one God. But after he died and after he left, the Philistines uh, enticed them again, returned them to their idolatrous uh, religions, kind of like again metaphorically filling them back up with earth. And so, what did Yitzchak have to do? He had to dig them out again. He had to teach them the ways of God once again. And that is why we have this entire story going around the digging of wells. And as we go through the verses now, you will see that, in fact, there's even more uh, discussion happening around the wells that allude 
to many, many things that will happen in our history. So, going back to the verse, verse 15 says the, the Pishtim had plugged up um, the wells and they, they, they filled them with earth. And if you recall from last week's discussion, um, the Pishtim realized that Yitzhak was very, very wealthy. And in fact, it said that the manure of Yitzhak's donkeys was worth more than Avimelech's gold. Since uh, they became jealous and Avimelech became jealous, Avimelech throws a bit of a tantrum. Verse 16 reads, Vayomer Avimelech el Yitzhak. Avimelech says to Yitzhak, Lech me'itanu. Go away from us. Ki atzamta nimenu me'od. You have become way too powerful for us. Basically, Avimelech was saying to Yitzhak, I can't endure this jealousy. You, you came here, you had a few possessions, and in a short time you became wealthier than I, and I'm supposed to be king. Okay? I don't have as many flocks as you, and now what have you done? You have left me humiliated because your house is greater than my place. So scoot skedaddle out of here. Yitzhak was very magnanimous about it. By Yelech Misham Yitzchok, he leaves, he leaves Grar, by Yichan, Benachal Grar, by Yeshev Sham, he goes and he finds a wadi that's outside Grar and he settles there. So he moves far away from the city to a valley between two mountains and it's next to a wadi in which water flows only during the rainy season. Now what we see for the next four or five verses is just things about wells. Wells, wells, and more wells. It says the following, Sorry, I jumped a verse. Vayashev Yitzchok. Yitzchok settles down. Okay. Aviv. He once again digs the wells that were dug in the days of his father by Yisasun Plishtimachrei Mot Abraham. Those were the wells that were dug, that were closed up by the Plishtim after Abraham died. And he calls the wells that he now redigs um, the same as his father. Now comes a problem. Yitzhak's servants dig in, 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 in the Nachal, in the Wadi. And they find living water. Sorry, but the the shepherds of the Pleshtim, the shepherds of Gerar, start fighting with the shepherds of Yitzhak, and when they see that they found water again, they yell out, "This is our water! This water is ours!" By Yikra Shem Haber Esek. And so Yitzchak calls this this uh, well Asik. Why? Because they argued with him. Asik means a challenge. They argued with him. This is our water, not yours. So in peace-loving uh, fashion, he moves on. He tells his servants to go and dig another well. The Yarivu Gam Alecha. And then this, the, 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 the shepherds of Grau start arguing about this one too. By Yikrashima Sitna. So he calls this one Sitna, which means obstruction. It means there was a dispute. There was another obstruction about that one. 
Vayatek misham vayachor be'er acheret. So he goes and he digs a third well. Ve'lo ravu aleha. And this one they did not argue about. An interesting way for it. Vayikra shma rechovot. He calls it rechovot. Now all of you ears should be pricking up. Because yes, in fact, there is a place in Israel called Rechovot. What does Rechovot mean? Rechovot comes from the word expansiveness or wide open space. And he named it that because Hashem will give us wide open space and we will be fruitful in the land. Now what we can see is that he does the same things. He names the wells the same way and Interestingly, three of the wells are zoomed in over here, and we are told that he names the first one uh, challenge, the second one obstruction, and the third one wide open spaces. We're going to go for a little bit of a break, and afterwards we're going to try and understand why he actually named them that. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome back, and let's dissect now what is happening with these three wells that um, were dug up, and why were they called, called so? So the first one was called Asek, the second was called Sitna, the third one was called Rechovot. So again, remember everything that was happening, it was happening on a practical level, but the brilliance about Torah is that it's not only um, that which we see in black and white, but that it has a tremendous amount of depth to it, and there is a tremendous amount of teaching to it. And in line with the fact that the digging of wells was all about um, finding spirituality and digging in and finding the inner truths, um, our rabbis teach us that these three wells in particular were in fact an allegory uh, a, a, an allusion to the future. Why? Because these three wells represented our temples. The first well was called Essek, which means challenge, because it was alluding to the first temple that we know was built by Solomon. It was built in the year 2928, 2928, from the time of creation. If you'd like to know um it in um, in Gregorian, it was uh, 422 years before the Common Era. And we know that it only lasted for 400-odd years, and I think it's 410 years, and its destruction uh, presented an ASIC, a huge, huge challenge to the Jewish people. They were thrown out of the land of Israel. They landed up in, in modern-day Persia, in, well, in those days, Persia, uh, which is modern-day Iraq, and the story of Purim happened there, and it took them 70 years to come back um, and rebuild the second temple. So the first uh, the first well, the shepherds of Gerar argued over it, and they said the water was theirs, which meaning that our temple did not have um, an eternity to it, a sustainable eternity to it. It actually possessed quite a big challenge and was ultimately uh, plugged up or left. Then the second well, which was called Sitna, was is, is an allusion, obviously, to the second temple that was built by Ezra in the year 532, um, before the Common Era, destroyed by the Romans in 68. That's 420 years. 
destroyed by the Romans in the year 3828. And we very well know that the second temple was destroyed because of Sitna. Sitna means hatred or it comes from the word Satan. There was causeless hatred um, and people began to quarrel and God destroyed that temple as well. Well, if we're following that, then we have a third temple. The third temple, which interestingly enough, even in the verses, has no dispute. Um, the illusion here is this is the temple that will be built in the Messianic age, the age that we are living in now. And with God's help, it will be very soon. It will be a time of peace and a peace of love. And that's why Yitzchak says God will now give us wide open space, meaning that God will give us the space to act on our own because the third temple um, will not depend, um, uh, will, will depend on our deeds, but our deeds will be so good um, because we will all have repented. We are living in messianic times. All the trials and tribulations, upsets and obstructions we are seeing in the world right now is is the birthing process. It's a pretty messy one. It's a very uncomfortable one. It's a painful one. But once we clear the mess, clear the corruption, clear all the negativity, when we come out of this, we will see the rebuilding of the third temple. And we are guaranteed through these verses and through other places in the Torah that the third temple will be an eternal one. And not only the Jewish people, but all people will come and 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 see it as a source of of of, of light, a, sport, a source of godliness, a source of blessing, and we will all go there and pray. So, what happens after the building of the three um, the, the the three wells? It says, "By Yal Misham Be'er Sheva, he goes he goes to Be'er Sheva." Now, remember Be'er Sheva, as we know today, there is a place called Be'er Sheva. In the exact region that all of this happened many thousands of years ago in the Bible, Yitzhak dug another four wells, um, paralleling the four camps that the Israelites had in the desert. So we have the four here, the three that he already dug, which made a total of seven, and therefore we have the name of the place called Be'er Sheva, the the well of seven. Um, And so... Basically, everything that happens, happens um, as a sign for the future, as we can see through all of these illusions. Well, once he's managed to, to overcome um, all of this, um, and he has re-dug the seven wells that Abraham had dug, meaning that he has managed to reach within himself and in and, and the world in general, a much deeper spiritual level, bringing monotheism to the world and getting people connected. He has the honor of God appearing to him again. So, Vayar Elav Hashem Balayla, God comes to him that night and he says, Vayomer, Anochi Elokei Abraham Avicha, I am the God of your, fa- your father Abraham. Altira, please do not be afraid. Because I am with you. I will bless you. And I will make great your seed because of your forefather Abraham. I will give you numerous offspring because of your father Abraham. He builds an altar. He calls in the name of Hashem. 
and he pitches his tent there, and again, he, he, the servants dig another well in that place. Again, following the theme of the wells, um, the well story in that, um, that this is about looking for the spirituality, looking for the, the deepness behind everything. And this, honestly, um, is something that we need to look look at. And it, it is a, it's a metaphor for our lives. We are not to be a people that, that are people described as what you see is what you get. Though physical reality is very compelling, and we like to understand things through our logic and like to understand things through what we actually physically see, the truth is, is that there is a much greater spirituality, a greater godliness behind this world, and it is incumbent on each and every human being, Jew and Gentile alike, to dig the well inside of themselves and find that connection, find that spirituality. Because at the end, yes, we are physical bodies, but what we call ourselves, when somebody looks at you and says, what is your name, who are you, you're not describing your body, you're describing your soul. And your soul is something that is not tangible. It is something that, that, that vivifies and gives life to your body. We know very well when a person passes on, they leave their body behind. And who they are in essence moves on, which is proof that we, we do live in a world that there, there is a greater reality. And it is our job, like our forefather Yitzchak, to dig deep, to look into, inside that well and look at the Be'er Chaim, um, Mayim. We are looking for a um, looking for a well that has Mayim Chaim, that has living water. And the living water um, is, an, is an illusion. It alludes to the spirituality, to the words of Torah um, that we need to connect to that allows us to see beyond our noses. I think that this is a vital lesson. This is something that we need to apply very much today um, in our lives uh, because this is a, uh, a situation where we are so bogged down by the physicality um, and it's not making sense that is putting us a lot into a sense of fear, a sense of anxiety. And um, if one looks beyond it and understands God's running the world, everything is in control. No, we are not in control, but God is in control. It makes us look at things a little bit differently. So I think that the emphasis of this whole well-digging story um, is coming to teach us a very powerful lesson. It also teaches us something else, that when you deal with evil, okay, eventually evil will understand that, 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 it, that what it was doing was against God. And there will come a point in time where evil will turn around. And we see it right now. Remember that while he was digging up this spirituality, while he was trying to bring a new truth to the world, the Pishtim hated him. Avimelech hated him to the point where Avimelech said, get out of here. Leave me um, and, 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 and go. I, I don't want anything to do with you. And, and Yitzhak moves away. Kind of an illusion of that throughout history we had to move away from the negativity and do what we have to do. But there will be a time when negativ negativity will realize that it's been barking up the wrong tree, physicality, and it will come and say that it, that it recognizes and knows that one has to look at oneself through spiritual glasses. And this is exactly what happens in the line of our story. 
verse 26 of chapter 26. So, Perachavav, Pasachavav, Avimelech halach elav migrar. All of a sudden, Avimelech travels from Grar, meaning he's coming to Yitzhak. Ve'achuzas mere'ehu, he comes with a group of his friends. Ve'uvefichol sar tzva'ay. And he comes with his general fichol. So he suddenly rocks up. Sometime later, okay, Yitzhak is now minding his own business. Outside, way, way away from him. Where Yomir Olehim Yitzhak, Yitzhak says to them, Madua batem elai. Why are you coming here? Okay. Atem senetem oti. You hate me. Vitashlicheni mi itcham. And you have sent me away from you. So what, what precipitated this? What happened? So we're told that when Avimelech exiled Yitzhak from his land, he was punished in two ways. First, his skin became covered with severe infections, just as Job's skin becomes bad with infections. Um, further down the other line in history. And do, how do the rabbis know this? Because it says, Avimelech halach elav migrar, that um, Avimelech traveled from Grar. Why, why, why are you telling us that? You don't have to tell us where you traveled from. We know you're the king of Grar. It appears redundant. So the rabbis say, read the word he traveled. Um, I love Grar because of Grar. Grar also means scratching, meaning the scratching and the itching from all the infections drove him to travel to Yitzchok and to come and tell him that he regretted exiling him. So that's the one reason that we are told precipitated uh, Avimelech coming, the second we are told was that, they, uh, that at night a band of rebels surrounded the palace and started screaming and didn't let the king sleep. Now he has a very interesting midrash. I guess it will go against the grain of our physical understanding, but hey, today we are talking about digging deeper, right? Listening to things on a spiritual level. So why did this precipitate in coming? So the Midrash goes and tells us that in those days, people were very intelligent on a spiritual level. And when troubles struck, they would examine their deeds. They would, they would look to see what wrongdoing they, they was causing their grief. Now it says the Midrash, this teaches us an important lesson, that if one cannot sleep at night, one should realize it is not without reason. Meaning that it's a sign on high that one has to look into one's deeds and rectify them. Why? Because we know that when we sleep, we experience a 60th of death, meaning that our soul leaves our body to an extent of one 60th of death. It goes on high. It reports to the heavenly courts what we have done during the day. And it also knows every decree issued then by what you could call the supernal academy. And then it informs the body. If the body wakes up in the middle of the night, it is because it is preventing it from sleeping because it heard what was going on in the supernal realms. So we see that a lot. So what happened now with Avi Melech is that he couldn't sleep at night. There was a band that kept on waking him up. Okay, meaning that he had to go and look at his deeds, and in his deeds he realized that uh, he he had sinned, that he should never ever have exiled uh, Yitzchok. We see another example by Achashverosh, 
What happened? Achashverosh, once, you can look it up in Megillat Esther, in chapter 6, verse 1, that Achashverosh suffered from insomnia one night, and what did he do? He asked for the book of records to be read to him, because he wanted to see if he had wronged anyone, or he had neglected a, a, a debt. So it's very, very different to how we treat insomnia today. You know, um, we can't, God forbid, take a, a bottle of wine and put us into a stupor of sleep. Um, we can we can swallow some tablets, etc., etc. But it says that a truly spiritual person who cannot sleep will use it as an opportunity just to review his actions um, so as to remember if he had done anything wrong, great or small. Um, and if he, if he did, to know to rectify it. So one should not, says the Midrash, very, very interestingly, assume that insomnia is due to natural causes, but rather that everything is from heaven. We're going to go for a little bit of a break. When I get back, I'm going to tell you a story from the Talmud that again corroborates what I've just been talking about. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Okay, if you were not convinced that um, you should recognize and look at what you're doing when you cannot sleep, here is a story from the Talmud. The Talmud relates that once one of the Talmudic sages, Rav Chuna, had 400 barrels of wine. And in what seemingly looked like a physical mishap, the wine turned sour and it turned into vinegar. And when the news of this reached the city, he got a visit from the other sages of the time. And they said to Rav Huna, Rav Huna, master, maybe review your deeds, because perhaps this travesty um, was caused by some misdeed. So Rav Huna replied, do you suspect me of something? So the, 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 the sages replied, and do you then suspect God? Do you think he would punish an innocent man? So Rav Huna replied back again, if you are aware that I did anything wrong, then say it. What have I done? To which the rabbis replied, well, now that you bring it up, we do know something. Remember our master, when you recently had a sharecropper farming some of your land, Besides giving him half the crops, you were also legally obligated to give him a share of the branches and the vines. These were neglected to give him. To which Rav Huna retorted, But you know that sharecropper, he's nothing but a thief. He stole much more than a few branches from me. Indeed, said the sages in reply to Rav Huna, Everything you say is true, master. But our sages say that one who steals from a thief is also a thief. And although he stole from you, you must give him his rightful portion. And when Rafuna heard that, he took cognizance. He took upon himself to pay the sharecropper his full due. And the end of the story says that God had mercy on him and the vinegar turned back into wine. Others say that it didn't turn back into wine, but the price of vinegar in the marketplace rose and he was able to sell it at the same price as he would have the wine. So what we see over here is that don't don't ever ever take your deeds. Whatever whatever you're doing is getting recorded. 
And if you do have insomnia at night, don't sit and uh, you know watch the net the next Netflix movie. Rather, maybe spend some time um, going over what you've done and if there's anything that you can correct. So, as a result, coming back to uh, to to the verses, Avi Melek gets up in the morning. He comes with his general uh, Fikol and his other friends, and he says the, they say the following. Because Yisrael says, "What are you doing? I thought you chased me away." By Yomru, and they said, "Ra'u ra'inu ki haya Hashem imach." We have seen that God is with you. Ve'nomatihina alenu benotenu benenu benecha nechata brit imach. Let it be now that between your, your children and our children and between our offspring, let us form, let us create an oath. Let us let us um, administer. Let us make an oath, a pact, that you will do no evil to us, uh, just as we did not touch you, and just as we did good. And just as we only did good to you and sent you away in peace, now you are blessed one of God. And so what we see over here is that um, in truth, Abimelech should not have been afraid of, 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 of Yitzhak because it was a king and Yitzhak was a commoner. Um, and, and also on top of that, Yitzhak was not a man of war. Okay, He wouldn't battle against Abimelech. But Abimelech was concerned because he had already gone through what he had gone through with um, with Abraham, he saw now that Yitzhak was just as blessed, and he was now concerned that Yitzhak's descendants would do the same to his children and drive them away. So he knew that God had promised Yitzhak the land of Israel, and he therefore re- wished to renew his oath. So even though he's saying we've quarrelled with you, yes, we've, we've exiled you, we don't, we didn't really harm you, and now you can see you're still blessed of Hashem. Let us make an oath together so that we can be friends. Very quickly, let me share another story in the Talmud, this time with King Yehoshua ben Hanania. This is about 130 CE. The Second Temple has been destroyed. The Roman Emperor Hadrian um, was in charge, and he grants the Jewish people permission to rebuild the temple. That would have been that we need to rebuild the Third Temple. And he was so excited about this Hadrian that he sent messages to all the Jewish communities in the kingdom. He asked the Jews to assemble in Jerusalem as soon as possible and to assist them in this. He sent a large sum of money from Akko to Antioch, says the, says the Gomorrah. There were tables covered with heaps of silver and gold coins to allow the Jews to pay for their travel expenses to come to Jerusalem to build the temple. So the Jews begin assembling in Jerusalem and obviously we know it was decreed on high that the temple was not to be rapidly built so quickly. It wasn't going to be so quickly built a third time. In fact, we've been waiting two and a half thousand years for this. And in the meantime, of all the Jews gathering at that point in time, the emperor changes his mind. Why? Because his advisors said to him the following, if you let the Jews rebuild their temple, you will suffer great losses because they will use the temple as the focal point of the independence movement. They will refuse to pay tribute and they were refused Roman taxes. And uh, Hadrian bought that. He, it was compelling for him. It was convincing. So he said to his, uh, he said to his advisors, 
how can I change my mind? I've already given a royal proclamation that they're granting them to build it. So they told him to say the following. Say to the Jews, I was very happy to grant you permission to build your sacred temple because I acted with great kindness um, towards you doing something that no other previous king had done. And I spent a lot of money for this purpose. But I wish to be the owner of the building and I want it named after me. So not to anger you, I give you one of the following choices. Either build the temple in another location, even better than it's on its original site, or make it five cubits higher or five cubits lower than the previous one. But whichever one you want, okay, the choice is yours. I'm happy with this. Well, obviously, when the Jews heard this, they began to weep and mourn because even though they had agreed to rebuild the temple, um, it meant building the temple according to the way God wants the temple to be built. We don't change places, um, sites where we build it, nor do we change the structure of it. And now they felt that they were in a they were in big trouble because if they don't, it would mean going against the emperor's orders, and in. In, in one way, openly, openly rebelling against the Romans. And they didn't know what to do. And there was a lot of argument amongst the Jews. Should we go ahead and just build something hodgepodge because that will keep him happy? Or if we say no, he's going to go mad for the money he spent. They eventually decided to go to Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania. And they said to them, help us, guide us. What should we do? Rabbi Hanania replied with a parable. He said, once there was a lion who had a bone stuck in his throat. And he made an announcement, whoever removes the bone from my throat will be amply rewarded. And so along came a long-necked stork, and it placed its head in the lion's throat, and it removed the offending bone. And when the bird asked for its reward, the lion said, Ah, you placed your head in my mouth and took it out in one piece. What greater reward can you request? All your life you'll be able to boast about it, said Rabbi, Hanan, um, Rabbi Yosho ben Hanania to the sages and to the Jewish people at the time. The same thing is true of us. We should rejoice because we were able to remove our head from the lion's mouth. We have been defeated by the Romans, but still we have survived. So forget about it. Do not build the temple. Just let it be. Well, the same thing is true over here. Avi Melech and his men are basically saying, you were in our power. We left you in peace. And that should give you sufficient cause to rejoice and sufficient cause to renew our oath. We're going to go back for a little bit of a break. And we are going to sum up the last three verses as soon as I come back. When God created the lofty mountains, the oceans teeming with life, the planets and the galaxies... God also thought the world needed one of you. What did you do today to better the world? Big or small, we would love to hear from you. Email Kathy with a K at highfm.com. Share your story. Inspire others. Change the world. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. High FM, your station of choice since 2008. In the last couple of minutes, we're going to read the last couple of verses, verses 30 to 33, by Yaslahem Mishdeh, the soccer by the way. So what does he do? He makes a feast for them, 
and they ate and they drank. They got up early in the morning. They made an oath one to the other. And then Yitzchak sent them on their way. They left in peace. And it was on that day. What happened? Yitzchak's servants came to 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 Yitzchak. They came and told him that again they had dug a well. Okay, and what did they say? Vayomru lanu matzanu mai, we have found water. Vayikra ota shiva al ken sheva eber sheva ada yomaze. And so he called it sheva, and this city is called Be'er Sheva until this very day. And kind of again, a symbolic allusion to the fact that when Mashiach will come, there will be a digging up of the well, a digging up of the spirituality, um, and that will be something that will stay forever and it will be permanent. What is not said now, and this will be an introductory for next week, is that after, after, after this um, episode, Yitzhak sends Yaakov away to study in the Academy of Shem Ve'eber. Um, Yaakov was 50 at the time, and in the, when Yaakov turned 56, that is in the year 2164, which is 1597 before the Common Era, he receives word that his mother's brother, wife, Dina, that means Lavon. Remember Rivka's brother Lavon? Okay, his wife, um, who had been childless for so long, had twin daughters. Um, and when Rivka heard that, got the news that she had become an auntie and that there were two daughters, she will now be summoning um, Yaakov back and um, telling him that it's time to get the blessings and move on with his life and go and marry uh, one of the daughters. But that will be for another time, which means next time, next week, same time, same place. Um, and in the meantime, I wish you all a Shavua Tov, a great week. Uh, thank God we are on the decline with, uh, with, with, with this wretched COVID. So remain safe, remain responsible, remain healthy, remain happy. Hashem is in charge, and all of this is just to get us to the final redemption. So hang in there, and please God, if we're not in Jerusalem by next week, I will be back on the radio right now. Have a good week. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.